With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Previously on Truth and Justice. Around 7.30 a.m. that Thursday morning, a man named Danny Stanberry let his dogs out the back door to go to the bathroom. Stanberry actually lived on Mark Street, but his backyard bordered on September. He let his dogs out and went back into the house, but heard the dogs barking wildly and went out to investigate. According to the police reports, Stanberry looked out the backyard and could see a woman laying on the grounds of Spruce High School in an open field. He says that she was on her back with her knees up in the air. He quickly ran to the woman to see what was wrong, and when he got to her, he found Kiel Gove lying on the ground with a cut on her head and blood coming from her middle section and her mouth. Stanberry says that her eyes were open and he was trying to talk to her, but Kiel wasn't responding. After just a few seconds, Stanberry ran back across the street into his house where he called 911. Once he got off the phone with the emergency dispatcher, he grabbed a blanket and went back across the street to Kiao. He didn't know what else to do, so he covered her with a blanket and waited for the paramedics to arrive. The only thing necessary for evil to prevail is that good men and women do nothing. I am simply a mouthpiece for good men and women around the world who want to make a difference. The engagement and the involvement of ordinary people is what is going to change our criminal justice system. Many have tried and failed, but the only difference between them and me is I'm bringing an army with me. This is Truth and Justice. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. We are now 10 weeks into the investigation of the murder of Kiao Gove. Over these last 10 weeks, we've gone from a 26-year-old cold case with no apparent leads to a much clearer picture of what might have happened back in that day on July 25th, 1991. We have a better idea of why Troy Eldred said what he said. We have a little more insight into why certain leads were followed and others weren't. And we have a whole new direction to go with some possible names and leads regarding the Z-28 Camaro witnessed by Jesse James Swindell. After last week's drop of episode 309, Z-28, things have gotten a little crazy here in the studio. That episode has launched lead on top of lead on top of lead. We have names flooding in, we're making connections from one person to another... And throughout this last week, I'm learning a lot more about what the neighborhood of Pleasant Grove was really like in the late 80s and early 90s. And to be honest, that neighborhood is not what I originally assumed it to be. Over the next several weeks, we're going to have a lot more witnesses to speak with that lived in the area, knew Keow, knew Kirby, and hopefully some people who knew Jesse James Wendell, Ronnie Blackwell, and the elusive Shane Quayle. But this week, we're going to talk to a couple of witnesses 
who I believe paint the clearest picture of what was happening in the Grove around the time of Kiao's murder. We're going to take a really short break right here to hear from one of our sponsors, and then when we come back from the break, I have an interview for you with Shirley and Danny Stanberry. Today's episode is sponsored in part by The Great Courses Plus. Like so many of you, I love to learn for the pure pleasure of learning, and that's why I'm such a big fan of The Great Courses Plus. The Great Courses Plus has fascinating video lectures on so many different topics presented by award-winning experts. I've learned more about forensics, history, and even how to cook. And I really want you to try The Great Courses Plus, so they're giving my listeners a special chance to stream hundreds of their courses for free. And that includes the course that Mike's watching right now, Fundamentals of Photography. We're working on a couple of new projects around here that involve some videoing and photography, and Mike has been a huge help in planning for all of this since he's been watching the Fundamentals of Photography on The Great Courses Plus. It's a great way to learn tips and techniques from a real professional photographer from National Geographic. He'll show you how to use lighting, how to frame your photos, no matter what type of camera you're using, even your smartphone. We actually used some of those tricks this weekend when I caught that tiny little fish and we made it look huge on Snapchat. Yep, a little bit of framing work and Mike was holding a five-pound bass that was actually a five-inch bass. And now for a limited time, our listeners can learn great tips like that too. You'll receive a free month to watch this and any of the other courses from The Great Courses Plus just by signing up through my special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash truth. That's right. You can start a free month a day, and I guarantee you'll love it. So sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash truth. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash truth. Around 7.30 in the morning on July 25th, 1991, Danny Stanbury let his dog out to go to the bathroom and went into the kitchen to make some coffee. The story that Danny relayed to Detective Royster was that he heard his dog barking, he looked outside and saw Kiao Gove laying in the open field across the street with her knees up in the air. According to Royster's notes, Danny ran across the street, checked on Kiao, went back to his house, called 911, and then returned to Kiao's body and put a blanket over her. This short interview with Danny Stanberry is the last we ever hear from him. He's never contacted by any other police officers, at least not that we know of, and Danny's statement just kind of fades away. He doesn't testify at trial. The 911 tape isn't played at trial. He's just gone. He finds the body, and that's all we've ever known about him. But I have questions for Danny Stanberry. First of all, what type of fence was in his backyard? When I visited the crime scene this year, all of the fences along that part of the block are big, tall, wooden privacy fences which makes you wonder how could someone see someone across the street. But what did those fences look like back in 1991? What kind of dog did Danny have? Was his dog a barker, or was it out of the ordinary for his dog to be barking at all? These are the questions that I wanted the answers to, and that's why, about a month ago, I reached out to Danny Stanberry. Yeah, I'm Danny Stanberry. Well, I was going to start on kind of what happened. I mean, as far as what went on, I mean... Okay. I woke up early that morning, and I don't remember exactly the date. I mean, it's been a long time, but uh, I let my dog out to pee early that morning to get up and go to work, and 
she kept barking and barking. And, uh, man, normally she don't ever bark. So I went outside and I was looking around and she kept looking over the fence towards the schoolyard. And I seen somebody laying out there. So I run out there and kept saying, can I help you? Can I help you? And she never did move or anything. I could just see she was kind of breathing. So I run back to the house and I called the police and I told them that neither the ambulance, we had a lady down and I went back out there with a blanket and I covered her up and I kept talking to her, but I never could get any answer or nothing from her. So I thought she was already gone. And then when the fire department got there and everything, the ambulance, they said, no, she was still alive. They were rushing her to the hospital. When when you went over there the first time, you said you thought she was still alive. When you went back with the blanket, do you remember, did, did you cover her whole body, like over her head too, or just over her body? Yes, I covered her all up because she wasn't responding to me or anything. So I covered her whole body up. Okay. Do you do you remember, um, she, was, she was holding a knife in one of her hands. Uh, do you remember seeing the knife? I remember seeing a knife. That's why I didn't get real close because I thought, well, shoot wakes up or whatever. I didn't know if she just passed out and was trying to protect herself or what. Right. But when I seen the knife, I just kind of stayed away from her, you know, just talking to her and I never could get an answer or anything. So yeah, I didn't want to no touch her or anything. I was, you know, just, I was scared myself. I mean, freaking out. Oh, I can but imagine. I didn't want to, yeah, I just didn't want to touch her or nothing. I mean, but I was trying to talk to her, and she never would respond or anything. Is what really freaked me out. Right? Did do you do you happen to remember which hand the knife was in, her right or her left hand? Uh, no. Okay. Uh, and then, and when when you first came up on her, did you did you notice her injuries, or did you just see that she was laying there not breathing? No, I wasn't. There wasn't any bunch of blood around or nothing. No, that's why I didn't think she was even stabbed. I heard she was cut a bunch, but. Uh, no, I didn't notice any major bleeding anywhere or anything from whatever. No blood on her I face put the or anywhere. over her. There wasn't a bunch of blood around nowhere. Okay. Um, now your, your dogs. Oh, well, first of all, I, I was actually out in the neighborhood. I'm, I, I'm, I'm from Michigan, but I, I had traveled down there to go through the crime scene stuff. And I was trying to figure out exactly where, uh, where everything was located. Now, did you have a chain link fence or a privacy fence in your yard? Yes, it was it was chain link across the backside and the front of it. I had a privacy fence running halfway between the house and the backyard. It was a a wooden fence that ran on one side of the house to the fence, and then on the other side it was a wooden fence with a gate so you could drive in and get to the garage. Okay, but the the back fence along September that was chain link. Yes. Okay, and I had a gate back there. Okay, that was the next question. So you had a gate, so you were able to just run through the gate? Yes, I, I opened the gate and went through it and closed the gate so the dog wouldn't get out. And I walked over to the schoolyard, just crossed the street, and she was right inside the fence area. Okay, and... There was uh, an opening there. Right, and, and that's where I'm trying... I think I know the area where she was, because there's kind of a... kind of Where the trees kind of crop back for a little bit, and there's like an opening right there. Yes. Okay. Yep. Do you remember, were, were there privacy fences on either side of you? Yes, on the, uh, uh, if you're looking at the house we were living in, on the left side, they had a wooden fence all the way around their property. They had a, a bunch of uh, 
what's them birds called, honey? Uh, uh, guineas. Oh, they had okay. a bunch of guineas in our yard. So they put a wooden fence up around the backyard to keep their guineas in. That's what it was. Okay, what about the house on the right? Did they have a privacy fence? The house on the right was a bunch of Spanish guys living there that worked for some roofer contract. Did they have a wooden fence across the back of their yard, too, or no, was it chain link? No, they just had chain link all the way around the back. Okay. They didn't have nothing in the front of his house. Okay, that see, that's the weirdest thing is is where she was killed. We were trying to figure out, like, was this a, a secluded area where no one could see? But it sounds like it was right out in the open. Yeah, basically from my house. I mean, she was, I mean, when I looked out my back door and I could see something, what she was barking at, my dog. Right, right. I could just see somebody laying out there. I mean, it was clear shot. And then I just took off running, you know, just trying to see what I could do. Because, I mean, we knew, the, we didn't know her personally, but we seen her all the time. Because my dog would pull me up and down that road on a skateboard. <laughs> That's, I mean, there wasn't no traffic out there. I mean, I'd get on my skateboard and put a leash on my dog, and she'd take off pulling me. Oh, what kind of dog and was my it? My daughter just started first grade, so we were walked her to the grade school, which was past the high school, and then across the road, and then there was the grade school. And that's where my daughter was going to grade school. That's why we got out of there. I was, Man, I, uh, we ain't putting up with this. Well, how long had you lived in that house? We lived there. How long we lived in that house there? Two to three years. Just a couple of years. But okay. I totally remodeled it. Yeah, a friend of mine owned it, and I totally remodeled the inside and outside, and then we moved into it with the option to buy and then when that happened, we just let it go and go back to them, and we right. left. Yeah, I don't blame you. We moved out here to East Texas. Right. What, what was the what was the neighborhood like then? Because I've talked to a lot of people, and they said that back like in the seventies, it was a really nice neighborhood, but around that time, yeah. it was getting bad. Yeah, it started getting just worse and worse. But I mean, yeah, we we had good neighbors and everything. I mean, nobody bothered us. Everybody was to yourself. Um, we had old people that lived across the street from me and I'd done work for her and cause I was in remodeling back then. Okay. And you know, just a lot of older people lived around there. I mean, it was, it was cool. Yeah. And it, were, were there, were there, do you know if there were gangs that were kind of moving into the area at that time? Yes. That's, that was part of it. The gangs moving in and then just, I mean, a lot of blacks moving in. I mean, we started having a lot of problems, you know, with stuff getting stolen and stuff. So that's why we just, it's time to go. Right, right. Now, when you ran over there to her, do you recall seeing uh, a white handkerchief or keys or anything around her? No. Okay. Um, and, and when you went, did, what was the order? So I know you went and then you called 911. Did you call 911 or did your wife call? Uh, I believe I did because my wife was still in bed. Okay, and when after she you... heard me talking on the phone, and that's when she got up. What are you talking about? Because she heard me calling the cops. Oh, okay. And that's when she got up out of bed and asked me about it. And I told her there was a lady laying up there and all this stuff. So she went and grabbed the blanket. And when I got through talking to them, I grabbed the blanket and took it back over there and covered her up with it. Did Shirley go back over there with you, or did you go back alone? No, they were inside the fence. Okay. Um, they didn't go all the way over there. It was just me. Now, from everything I hear, there were people that walked around that school all the time. 
And so, like, I, I've yep. got I've got two big, big German shepherds, and nobody could even even come near my house without them barking at them. But you said your dog didn't normally bark a whole lot. Nope. So no, nope. she was very good. She was a golden retriever, and it was my daughter's birthday present from a, the guy that we got the house from, and he raised them, and he gave her a pick for her birthday, and she picked out that one there, and that's I mean, she was a sweet dog. She loved everybody. If something was going by, she just, I mean, never barked or anything. And that's what really puzzled me that morning is she just kept barking and kept barking. I thought, man, what in the world? And that's when I noticed somebody laying over there. And I thought, wow, man, what is going on? So would you, would, it sounds to me, would you, would you agree that probably your dog was 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 seeing the actual murder? I, I, it doesn't sound like a dog that would bark if they just looked over and there was someone laying there. That probably they saw something happening. Yeah, no, that could have been. I mean, like I said, they they could have been happening in the end when she was doing all the barking. The lady might have been screaming or something. I don't know. All right. But and when I went, when I looked out the window, there was nobody out there. You didn't see any cars driving away, bikes, people didn't, running. Didn't see nothing. No, nothing. I mean, like I said, and I walked out the back door to really actually look and see. And I could just see the body laying there. I didn't, there wasn't nobody around. And I run to the fence and open the gate and went through. And I didn't see nobody going anywhere. I mean, actually, I went straight to her. I wasn't looking. Right. Yeah, I guess there could have been somebody out in the distance. You probably wouldn't I mean, have I didn't hear a car or anything, but I didn't see nobody running or anything. I mean. Okay. Um, now, you you didn't testify at the trial. Did anybody ever talk to you after that day, police or the prosecutor or anybody? Nope, the only one I talked to, and that was her husband, and he was handing out some brochures for uh, a reward. Uh-huh. And that's when he said something about that he had looked in his mailbox when he got home from work, and the keys were in his mailbox. So it had to been somebody that knew her or whatever is what he was telling us. Yeah, I was just, I was just reading about that. That was crazy, too, because his mailbox was, was like it wasn't out on the road. It was, on, it was attached to his house. So somebody yeah. walked up there and put them back into the back yeah. into the mailbox. That's what I was saying. I, I, I don't know. It must have been somebody that knew them. I mean. Yeah, or at least knew where they lived. We never heard nothing else till now. Yeah. It, it's we haven't so, heard anything else from anybody until now. Like the girls come out, you know. Right. Was talking to us about it. Like, Man, what in the world? How the hell y'all find us way out here? <laughs> yeah, we're 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 tricky about tracking people down sometimes, uh, but it, it's just a well. Cr- I mean, it's no big deal. It's just because they didn't really take my name or much or anything, and then we kind of read the report, and she was I don't know stabbed and cut a lot and everything, and I, I didn't even notice all that blood. I mean, if she was done that many times, you was like she'd been a real bloody looking, right? And to me, she wasn't. I mean. Well, it was probably, you no, know, well, I didn't understand that part. Yeah. And, and you said you didn't even notice the blood that was on her face or because she had a big gash right on her cheek. I, see, and I didn't notice even that. Well, yeah. And it may I not have been just trying to get her to talk to me. Now, maybe I wouldn't. Well, they I did... mean, I don't know. I just Allison uh, that visited you today, the attorney, you know, she works for him and is trying to yeah. work on, on getting his conviction overturned. I'm an investigator. I'm trying to figure out who actually did it. And I'm just appalled when i'm reading the investigation like for you you're the the only thing close to a witness at all 
and the police never talked to you. They didn't. The prosecutor never talked to you. They never brought you to trial. It's just, it's crazy. I don't know. They just, they just really half-assed the whole thing. Yep. Um, That's what it's all like to me. As my conversation went on with Danny, we started to talk about the decline of the neighborhood. Danny was telling me why he and his wife finally decided to move out of Pleasant Grove, and he mentioned to me a story that his wife had told him about seeing a car parked across the street. Yeah, my wife was telling me it was a white Camaro. seemed like a white Camaro was backed up into the woods because that street made that sharp turn right there. Uh-huh. I mean, you had to actually stop kind of and turn to onto that side road that comes behind my house. Right. And it was back into the woods. Like it turned that corner and then back back into the woods. Back, so like up where like up where like Grady and September meet. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, yeah. And then that like alleyway that goes back towards Mark Street. Well, there was no alley or nothing through there. It just dead ended right into September. Oh, okay. See, they're used now. When I went there, yeah. like Grady, when it when Grady gets to September, like if you're going east, there's like right. an alley that that then keeps going straight back through there. Okay. Over the yeah, Mark. there there was no alley there back in the day. Okay, so that was that was all trees and stuff all the way through there. Okay, so they had turned on to September and then backed up in there. And it was just, so now. Now, how long was this after the after the murder? Uh, approximately a week. About a week. So your your wife's the one that saw the car park back there. Yeah. Did she call the police or anything? Uh, no, I don't think she ever. No, you never called the cops about that car or anything. Did you? No. Okay, but it was so your wife just happened to see there was a white Camaro park back there. Yeah, it seemed like it was a white Camaro. It was backed up into the woods. Hold on just a second. Okay. You know, I I just thought of something. Okay. Um, I believe I kept uh, harping on it with the um. Um, detective that was in the case and I had no idea who it was but I, I remember vaguely and when he was in the talking about it about that white car uh-huh. um, I remember I have to remember I know I did I know I did call them because I kept calling them asking them uh, did you find anything out you know but I don't remember who he was it, the guys, well, the lead detective was Kyle Royster, and then the other detective's last name was Davidson. If any of that rings a bell, I'm, no, sir. Yeah. So, so you you think you you did call and say something just and say something about that car? Yes. Okay. Because it, I kept calling back for at least a month, month and a half, and I felt well, maybe I don't want to bug them too much, you know, and I just quit calling. Sure. And I believe that's where he left. When you saw the car, were you just driving by when you saw the car over there? No, I can see it out my back window. Oh, your back window. window. So is that, is that where it was? Was down on the end of like September and Grady in that corner, or was it across the street? Mm, it was in the woods. You know, it was far enough into the woods, so I was wondering how they get that car over there, but everything is locked. You know, right? Like in the woods on the high school grounds, like like across. Yes. The- Oh, okay. So yes. it wasn't down the street. So you saw that car parked in the woods across the street from your house, like, like right near where where her body was found, only a little further back? Oh, uh, further back. Okay. Man, I wonder how they got in there. Was there a gate somewhere where somebody could drive a car in there? 
I don't think so because you know the school is pretty pretty uh, uh, secured, and I believe the only way to get anything in now would be where the parking lot was. You know, for kids to uh, I don't know come in and out from there, but everything was locked up. It was a morning. I just looked out there like, ooh, and it, I'm not, I know it scared me because I was still spooked. Right. I mean, it took me like two or three months before I could sleep at night without just listening to everything, you know. Right. I had a, I no, I was, I didn't call anybody, but talking to, you know, just thinking about it, I have to have told the, the detective, whoever's in charge, mm-hmm. about it because it was still fresh in my mind. I was like, well, I was trying to help as much as possible, you know. Okay, so so I just want to make sure I have it clear. So you in the morning you looked out across September in the grounds over by near where where Miss Gove was killed, but back further in the woods, and you saw a a white Camaro park back there. Yes, it was back further in the woods, and it, I want to say white Camaro. It keeps sticking out in my head. The reason that's got the hairs on the up on the back of everybody's neck is because about two months later, uh, a woman named Judy Gonzalez called the police and told them that on the morning of the murder that she saw four men drag Kiao into the into the back of a white Camaro on Grady Lane that morning. Mm-hmm. And the, the lead never, never panned out, and it was never made public or anything, but it literally just sent shivers down my spine. Well, yeah, I'm I'm a little nauseated right now too. <laughs> I mean, there's I wish all this came back out from what they said that that man is you know suffering in prison. He's not you know, he, yeah, maybe, d- you know. it looks like but, he's uh, not yeah. the one that did it. I, if White Camaro keeps sticking out of my head, in my head, and for some reason. And like I said, I apologize. I've had brain surgery, but there's some things that I keep, if I keep thinking about it, um, it come back to me. Yeah, no, that's, that's perfectly fine. And you guys really have been a lot of, a lot of help in, um, we really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. At least, you know, at least it's, you know, all, cause all we ever have to work off of is a police, the police yeah. officer's notes and, you know, they'll talk to you for a half hour and write down two sentences. So we don't know exactly what the whole story was. And, and was your okay. guys' address there? Do you remember? Was it was it one thirty three marks? You know what one thirty three marks one thirty three. Does that sound better? <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I was, I'm, <laughs> oh, that's that's all right. If it's one, if that does sound familiar. Okay. But if I have to go back, and I don't think I have any uh, um, I, I, anything that has a address. That's all right. That, I'm, I'm I'm sure. <laughs> I'm I'm sure I have it in the records. I just. We had went out to check out the crime scene, and we were trying to figure out where exactly this happened, mm-hmm. and we didn't have the mm-hmm. address at that point. But but so where, where her body yeah. was found was directly across the street from your house, right? Yes. Okay. Well, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, you know, I won't take up any more of you guys' time, but thank you so much. I really appreciate you guys taking the time to talk to me. Okay. Well, thank you for uh, your interest in it and helping him out. I appreciate it. And God bless you. And I hope y'all find out who yeah. it is. And if you don't mind letting us know. Yeah, we yeah, will. I, 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 pro- I promise you if we find anything out, I will I will keep your number and I will call you and let you guys know what we find out. Okay. And what is your name? My name is Bob Ruff. My last okay. name is Ruff Like a Dog. Oh, you're Bob Ruff? Yes, that's me. 
Oh, yeah. I, I, I Googled it the other day. I was like, oh, okay. Oh, you're Bobber. Oh, okay. So through my All discussion right. with the Stanberries, we now have a few more things to look into. We're going to take our last break here to hear from our last two sponsors. And then when we come back, we're going to dig in deeper into this white Camaro that may have been parked across the street from the Stanberries one week after Kiao's murder. Through my conversation with Danny, we've learned several things. One big thing that we've learned is that not only Danny, but also the property next to his had chain link fence along the back of their property, the part of their property that bordered September Street. What that means is that at least two yards, now Danny did say the house on the one side had a wooden privacy fence, but for at least two backyards wide, there's a wide open view from the back of these people's houses all the way to exactly where Kia was killed. Danny says that her body was directly across from his backyard. Now, I've actually stood right there and looked into Danny's backyard a couple of months ago. And with a chain link fence there, you're looking directly into the sliding glass door in the back of the house and through the windows. The point here being, there was zero concealment. If the attack took place where it ended, that means that the killer chose to attack somebody in broad daylight right in front of two houses that had a clear view directly to the path of the attack. So if we try to tie that in with Troy Eldridge's story, that means Jesse would have grabbed Kia right there, held her in the middle of the street while she's kicking and screaming, while Troy's screaming at him and he's screaming at Troy, all the while while two houses had a perfect view of what was going on. I think this further adds to the credibility of Jesse James Wendell's statement and my previous assessment that the attack, if premeditated, which I believe it was, would have had to have occurred up near Apache on Grady Lane, the only place where there was any cover, because there was zero cover where the attack ended on September Street. The other interesting thing that we learn is that Danny Stanbury's dog was not a barker. And we've wondered about this before because so many people walk around that neighborhood on a regular basis. If the Stanbury's dog was one that barks at people walking by, that we would think that he would always be barking and therefore we wouldn't find it odd when he barked when Kiao was attacked. But as you heard, according to Danny, his dog was not a barker. He never barked at people walking by, and there was constantly people walking by that neighborhood, including Kiao. Remember, he said that he had seen Kiao walking by there on many occasions, and therefore so had his dog. So what does that tell us about the attack? Well, to me, it indicates that Stanberry's dog was witnessing the actual attack. I don't believe that the dog came outside and saw Kiao laying across the street and started barking, although that's possible, but it doesn't sound likely given the behaviors of that dog. I think it's much more likely that the dog was outside and witnessed screaming and fighting and an attack happening right then. So what that also does is indicate, at least in my opinion, that we are likely looking for someone that was in a car. Because once the dog started barking, Danny found that odd and he went outside to investigate and he saw Kiao laying across the street but he didn't see anyone else around. No one walking, no one running, including not seeing Jesse Eldridge running away from the crime scene. By the time he heard the barking, got outside, he says he ran across the street to Kiao, there was no one around. And I believe the only way someone could have fled in time that they were completely out of sight by the time Danny got over there would have been if they were in a car. Now I'll concede that that's certainly not evidence. It's more of an observation. But in my opinion, if Jesse Eldridge was running around the school and Troy Eldridge was running through the school grounds, Danny Stanbury would have seen one or the other. And of course, we have the information from last week's episode that there were school workers all over the place 
that also didn't see anybody running back away from the scene. But moving on, the thing that I found very interesting, and I'm sure all of you did too, was Shirley Stanbury's account of there being a white Camaro parked across the street from her house in the woods right next to where Kiao's body was found a week after the murder. That, of course, sounded absolutely crazy to me, and as you heard from Shirley Stanbury, she had no idea about Jesse James Swindell's story about the white Camaro around the corner, and she actually felt nauseous when I told her that the white Camaro she saw across the street may have been related to the murder. But much like a lot of the stories that seem to be coming out of the woodwork in this case, the idea of the white Camaro returning to the crime scene and being inside of a fence, no less, did not sound plausible to me at all. So I did some investigating. The first thing that I wanted to know was, is it even possible for a car to get inside of the school grounds? The school is completely surrounded by a fence. Now back in the early 90s, we know that there were openings every half a block or so for people to be able to walk in, but I didn't recall any openings large enough for a vehicle to drive through. Although I knew there had to be some access points for maintenance vehicles or emergency vehicles during football games and things like that to be able to get in. So during my last trip to Texas, Chris Brinkley and I took a walk around the school to see if there was anywhere where we could see that a vehicle could have gotten inside the fence. What we found was that there were a few gates, one of them being right near where Apache comes into Grady. There's a wide gate, plenty big enough for a vehicle to drive through, right at that intersection. But the gate was locked. So that led to the question of, were these gates locked back in 1991? While Chris and I were contemplating this, we noticed a maintenance man driving a golf cart around the school spraying for weeds. I want to ask this maintenance guy if he knows when the fence was replaced. Hey, quick question for you. Have you worked in the school very long? 32 years. 32 years. First of all, do you remember how long ago it was when they replaced this fence? This one here? I'm gonna say it had to have been in the last year or so. Okay, but that all the way around, like on September too? Yeah, if it's all the way around the building, they pretty much do everything they can at the same time. Okay. So the fence is pretty good. Right, just within the last year. And they, and they had breaks in the fences where people could walk in before? Uh, yeah, they did. Yeah. And the building, they sure did. Okay. It'd be an opening ever so far you could go through. Right. Now, what about the, the, the service entrances, uh, like where you could drive a vehicle through? Mm -hmm. Were, I'd say all those have chains on their lock now. Were, they, were those always chained up, or did they use it just to be? I started here back in 85. Most of the time, you go to the fences back then, around that era, they might be open, they might be closed. Okay. And they're supposed to be closed, but it was what it was. Right, sure. Uh, Different neighborhood back then, yeah, too. Right. Yeah, yeah. Now, they pretty well try to keep them locked up because people get in there and start doing donuts with the cars and mess up the ball pit. Right. So. Did that used to be a problem back then, people driving their cars in and tearing things yeah. up inside the grounds? Front yards especially. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Well, that's great to know. Thank you. You've actually been more help than you think you have. <laughs> so, as it turns out, it actually was plausible for a vehicle to be inside of that fence in the early morning hours back in 1991. The maintenance guys worked at the school for 32 years, and he said that back then, the gates were most of the time left open, and they had a big problem with cars going in and turning donuts in the yards and things like that. So it's not out of the question for a vehicle to have gone through that gate and driven up to those woods. But then that leads to the question of why. Why would someone do that? Why would anyone do that? If you remember back to my interview with Jim Clemente about a month ago, 
There was a part in the interview where I said I wanted to go off the record for a minute to talk to him about some post-defense behavior. This was the post-defense behavior that I was talking about. And that's why would someone, if this is the offender who actually attacked and killed Kiao, if that's the case, why would they go back to the scene in their vehicle like this? As a side note here, many of you get frustrated sometimes because we might mention something and then wait weeks before we report on it. And I want you to know that this is a perfect example of why that happens. We get new information coming in all the time. But there's a process that we have to go through before I'm ready to report a story to you. In this case, Shirley Stanberry told me about this white Camaro about a month and a half ago. It sounded like great content to talk about on the podcast, but I didn't know how relevant it was. That's why I went off the record with Jim to talk about it. I didn't even know if it was feasible for a car to have gotten inside of that fence. For all I knew, Shirley Stanberry was crazy. So over the next several weeks, I went to the school, I talked to the maintenance man, I determined that yes, it was in fact possible for a car to get in there. And then we start chasing down the lead on the Z28. Is Jesse James Wendell's testimony relevant? And as you heard in last week's episode, in my opinion, there's enough truth in Jesse James Wendell's testimony and enough indications that he's telling the truth that while the details may not be exactly right, I do believe that he did witness someone being abducted into a white Z28 Camaro. But this is just one example of how this process works. I can't just go off the cuff and just tell you everything I hear. All the information has to be vetted, run down, determined if it's feasible, if it's logical, if it's plausible, and try to figure out what it might mean before we come out with it on the podcast, which is what we're about to do now. So when I went off the record with Jim Clementi, I asked him if this vehicle was involved in the abduction of Kiao Gove and her murder, then what would it mean to him? Why would they return to the crime scene in the vehicle a week after the offense? And this is what Jim had to say. While I've got you on the phone, Jim, is I was just recently made aware of some potential post-defense behavior that I wanted to run by you. So I interviewed earlier this week Danny Stanberry and his wife, Shirley. Danny is the man that found Kiao's body the morning she was killed. So when I was talking to him and his wife, uh, I was just getting a layout. You know, we found out that there was the chain link fence and there was no privacy fence and kind of the lay of the land. And then his wife told me that one of the triggers for them to move out of the neighborhood was that about a week after the murder, she got her coffee in the morning and looked out the back window and saw a white Camaro parked in those woods right near where Kiao's body was found. And well, wait, how could it park in the woods? I thought that was there was a fence there. Well, there is, but now, so one of the reasons when I was in Texas, when I was walking around the school, I grabbed one of the maintenance men there who's been working at the school for 32 years, and I asked him about that. We saw them, they're chained now, but there's service gates all around the school. But he said back in the 90s, they were never locked. And they used to have problems with, you know, kids would take their cars and go in and turn donuts in the open fields and stuff. And later he said, now we're, you know, we strictly keep them locked. But back then, most of the time they were unlocked. But it was when I was talking to her and she told me that it sent shivers down my spine because, you know, I I had heard the story about the white Camaro dragging the woman into the car that morning. And then I told her after she told me about it. I told her about that report from a month later, and she she literally was shell shocked and just said that you know she felt like she was going to throw up. She had no idea. Let's say they dropped something. 
I mean, they saw it what time of the day? She said it was morning time, about the same time in the morning. You know, just after sunup? Right. I mean, yeah, what if they lost something? Now, I thought about that, too. And I also thought about the keys because that was right around the time the keys got returned also. But then my thought was, why drive the car back there? Why not just park and walk through the gate and look around? Well, that's why I was asking what time, because what if they went there when it was dark out and used the headlights to search? Oh, that makes sense, because she did say it was early in the morning. She had just gotten up and was making her coffee. Yeah, could be. That was basically it. I was just wondering about your take on that as I'm trying to you know, determine the validity of all these reports coming in of if, in fact, say it was that was the people or person that killed her, why would they come back? Do you think it would most likely be if that was the case to try to find something that they lost? Yeah, I would think that that's probably it, unless it was some kind of, I don't know, I just can't imagine a reason why that they would go and risk being in right in the same spot other than the fact that the knife was left there or something fell out of the pocket. You know, let's say it was multiple people. You know, one of them could have lost something and thought they lost it there. And, you know, that's why they were looking. You know, something that they could be identified by. That makes sense. And then with the keys being returned, kind of going back to that, if, and it's still a big if at this point, but if it was the offender or one of the offenders, that returned the keys, what would, would you think still that that would be a remorse thing or what? Cause that seems like a huge risk too. Yeah. But you know, if these are nocturnal animals and the neighborhood is pretty quiet overnight by quiet, I mean, you know, civilians are hiding and there's no front gate. There's nothing to stop them from just walking up from the street and putting the keys in and going. It is possible. It's also possible that the girlfriend of one of those guys dropped them off, found them and dropped them off, found them because the guys had it. You know, one of the guys had it. Right. And the other thing is that's the husband's testimony about her name being Jip. Jit, yeah. How is it reported in the news? In the newspaper, it's Kiao. Of course. So he's wrong. Anybody who knew her would also know now because of the paper that her real name was Kiao. So if they found the keys, they may have done it. That makes sense. I hadn't even thought. So Jim brings up a couple of really good points here. I'll start from the end and work back. Number one, the keys. Jim is exactly right. Kenneth testified that everyone who knew Kiao knew Kiao as Jit. But the day after the murder, as it was reported in all the newspapers and on the news, it was reported that her name was Kiao. So the idea that if someone found the keys, wouldn't know that her name was Kiao really is out the window at this point. Now, what I don't want to happen is for this to turn into another debate about the keys. I think we've beaten the keys to death at this point. So I'm going to go on the record and say that we're going to have to agree to disagree. I personally believe that the keys were placed in the mailbox 11 days after Kiao was killed, and that's the day that Kenneth and Kiao found them. Some people think they were placed there earlier. There's no way that we can possibly know one way or the other. So let's just leave the keys at that. We agree to disagree for those of us that disagree. But what we do have to consider is the timing of when Shirley Stanberry says that she saw the white Camaro in the woods where Kiao's body was found about a week after the murder. And then Kenneth Gove says that the keys were mysteriously returned to their mailbox about a week after the murder. The other interesting thing is going back to the police reports and reading about how the police were looking for evidence on the crime scene 
What is specifically noted is that they scoured the scene on both sides of the fence up and down the entire length of September Street. What is never mentioned in the report is that they scoured the scene back behind the crime scene in the woods, back where that Camaro was seen a week after the offense. Which, when you think about it, logically, it makes sense. I mean, they should have done a better job. They should have created a perimeter and searched everywhere within probably 100 yards of the scene for evidence. But when the police arrived on the scene, it looked as though Kiao had come from the street, through the fence, and was murdered right there. So they looked between where she was at and the fence, and then up and down the fence. Knowing that now, I think that it is entirely possible that Jim is right here. That maybe the killers lost something there. Maybe they threw a knife back into the woods, or threw the keys back into the woods, or dropped something. Anything could have happened because it doesn't appear that the police checked back into those woods. They only checked between Kiao's body and September Street. And since we never recovered a murder weapon, the keys were mysteriously placed into the ghost's mailbox, I think that it is likely, or possible, I'll say that, it is possible that the killers returned to the crime scene using the headlights from their car as a flashlight to try to find something that was left behind and was missed by the police. So where does all of this leave us now? Which direction should our investigation go? Considering the fact that there's very little physical evidence, and it appears that there may have been physical evidence that was completely overlooked or missed by the police, it's becoming crystal clear that what is going to solve this case is people. People talk. People remember. And there are people in the Pleasant Grove neighborhood that absolutely know what happened on that morning. As of right now, we have a lot of names and a lot of leads to track down. But what I'm noticing so far is that we're not dealing with a random bunch of teenagers. What we're going to dive into next week is the real people of Pleasant Grove, otherwise known as the Grove Rats. Truth and Justice is a production of New Beginning Incorporated. Our executive producer is Mike Bussing. Our sound engineer is Shane Yoder. All music for the show was created and scored by PutThemInASong.com. I want to thank Tate Krupa for designing and creating our logo. And thanks to Chris Brinkley of SylviaConsultants.com for creating and managing our website. As always, thank you to our transcription team, Sarah Hoyt, Desiree Dunn, and Sarah Mueller. Thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. Keep sending in your thoughts, theories, and ideas to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can leave us voicemails for the Friday follow-ups at 269-224-2833. You can leave those voicemails anytime, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You can also keep in touch by liking our Facebook page or following us on Twitter at truthjusticepod. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice.